We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. I'm excited because this morning we are in week four and our final week uh, of our series called Shadows of Christmas. And I don't, I don't know about you, but here's what I know for me. This series has been very encouraging to me. I have loved looking back into the Old Testament, into um, these shadows, these previews, if you will, of Christ, and seeing how he is the greater of each of them, and, and seeing this thread of redemption, this redemptive thread that, that began all the way in the Garden of Eden and how God has woven it through the narrative of his word um, all the way to us. And so it's been very encouraging to me. In uh, week one, we saw uh, how uh, Jesus was the greater Adam. So we saw how in Adam, um, we, all of us fell. We were born with that sin nature. And so what was necessary was a second Adam, a greater Adam, and Jesus was that. And then in week two, we looked at the story of Abraham and Isaac and how Isaac was going to be sacrificed, but he was saved by a substitute, right? But how Jesus died as a substitute for us. He was sacrificed as the substitute. So he was the greater sacrifice. And then Last week, we looked in Exodus chapter 12 and how God spared his people because they put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost and the blood of the Passover lamb, and he passed over them and he spared them. But how Jesus is the greater deliverer. They were delivered because of that lamb, but Jesus is the greater deliverer. He is the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And because of his shed blood, we are delivered. And this morning, we get to look at King David, at King David, and how, yes, David was a, a great king who won these unbelievable victories for the people of God, but how Jesus is the greater king who has utterly defeated our enemy forever for us. Amen? And so, I want you to grab your Bible and go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, and um, you know, this is a very familiar story. This is the story of David and Goliath, and most of you have heard this story from when you were little. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably hear, you've probably heard about David and Goliath. Sports Center says it about a dozen times an episode, right? That when you have the underdog fight, like when SFA beat Duke, that was a David and Goliath thing, right? And so um, they, they use this all the time. And I know that I grew up learning this story. I learned it in Sunday school. Matter of fact, I remember as a little boy, they would teach this story with those little felt cutout characters and stick it on the felt board. Anybody remember? And then uh, just to make it awkward, they would pull out those googly eyed dolls, you know, the ones where the eyeballs never sit still and they look strung out and they're real creepy. You guys know, no, y'all didn't have those? Those things give me stress dreams today. I still don't like them. They bring those dolls out and I'm like, ah, don't look at me. And so, um, but that, well, they use those. And so I've learned David and Goliath all of my life. And I've, I've heard this story and all of my life. Matter of fact, I remember when I was around 12, um, our church did a little skit of this story, David and Goliath. We were doing like this backyard kind of Bible club thing and we were at a park. Um, and, uh, we were doing the skit of David and Goliath. I was, I played the part of David, you know, it was the lead role, no big deal. And, uh, uh so, there was a senior who was playing uh, Goliath, and I had one line, one line. All I had was one line. There was a narrator telling the story. Here's the only thing I had to say. It even rhymed. They were trying to make it easy for me. It was, you come against me with spear and sword. I come against you in the name of the Lord. That's all I had to say. The whole skit, I had one line. Couldn't pull it off. Couldn't handle it. Messed it up. And so 
I don't know what I said, but I remember the narrator going, in the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. She had to feed me the line. And so I don't know why I couldn't figure that out, but it was awesome. You know, I slung, you know, did the whole thing. The senior fell. I got to go pretend, cut his head off. Very morbid, very awesome. Uh, And so it was really cool, but I've known this story all of my life. And so have most of you probably. And like so many things that we are familiar with, even the stories we've walked through in this series, it's easy for us to miss what matters. It's easy to miss what matters. But listen, I think that there are some deep, profound, uh, glorious truths in the story of David and Goliath, and I don't want us to miss them. So here's my challenge for you today. My challenge is for you to hear it new right? And for us to ask God to reveal those deeper things that he wants us to have today. So let's pray and let's ask him to do that, all right? Lord, I, I am asking that this morning you would illuminate your word. God, I ask that every week, and I, I always want to put that before you, Lord, because um, I'm not enough and we are not enough. When we open your word, Father, It is a divine exchange between you and us. And so we need you, Lord, to illuminate your word. And in this story where we are familiar, God, would you reveal something new? Would you draw out the deeper truths that you want us to have today? Um, And God, would you cause them to um, minister to us, to, to encourage us, to equip us for what you have called us to do? So we love you, Lord. So come now. And, um, and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Samuel 17, I'll tell you in advance, we're going to read most of this chapter because it's so good. I just couldn't find a lot that I wanted to leave out, but I want to set it up for you. Here's where we are. The Philistine army has come and begun to invade Israel. And, and they're working their way up through this mountainous region. Saul hears about it. He brings his army and the, the, the Israelite army out to meet them. And so now what we have is on one mountainside, you have the army of the Philistines. And on the other mountainside, you have the army of Israel. And in between them, there's a valley. It's a valley about a mile long. It's a valley, a valley called Elah. And no one's willing to wade out into the valley first because they know if they do, they forfeit the high ground. So you've kind of got this stalemate of these armies sitting on the side of these mountains and nobody really willing to move. And let's pick it up in verse 4. It says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, modern measurements put that at about nine feet tall. So just resonate in that for a minute. A nine-foot-tall human, all right? He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's about 156 pounds of just the chain mail that he walked around in, okay? Verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 15 pounds. Most uh, most, uh, heads of spears weighed a few pounds. His weighed 15. And his shield bearer went before him. Verse 8, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul... And all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly what? Greatly afraid. Think about that. The king, this isn't just the army that's afraid. Armies get afraid. But they take their courage from somewhere. And the king, with his army, is terrified of this man who is cursing 
the living God. What we see over the next few verses is David kind of enters the story. We find out that David is the youngest son of Jesse. David's uh, three older brothers are in the battle right now with Saul. They are in Saul's army. And David's father, Jesse, sends him uh, with some provisions to his brother. He pulls him away from tending the sheep. He says, I want you to take these things to your brother, and I want you to bring me word that they're doing all right. And so he sends David. David goes. When he gets there, he finds out that this giant Goliath, you've got to put the right emphasis on the right syllable, otherwise it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> this giant Goliath uh, is coming out. He's taunting uh, the army of Israel and cursing God and that he's been doing it for 40 days. Now look at verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine went, um, Philistine of, Goli- of Gath, Goliath, by name, came out from the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. Verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who comes up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him in great riches, with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. David is the first one to ask the only question that matters. For 40 days, for 40 days, he's the only one that asked the first question that matters. Who is this guy that he would speak this way about our God? Verse 27, and the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Jump to verse 31. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. What is, Paul, what is Saul saying? Saul's saying, This guy's been killing people since before you were alive. You're not going out there. Right? You're too young. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Once again, David is the only one saying the thing that they all should be thinking and saying. In verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to him, go, and the Lord be with you. Next, what we see is Saul tries to put his armor on David, right? Remember that, remember that little fun scene? Here's Goliath standing out in the middle of this valley. He is head to toe covered in glistening bronze armor, looking unbelievable. And Saul is not about to send the only guy with the courage to step out into the valley. He's not about to send him out there looking like a shepherd. He's like, no, you got to come in here. i got to get you dressed up. And so he puts his armor on him. But what happens? It doesn't fit. Why? His armor is specific to the warrior, particularly for a king. And so David's like, I can't wear this stuff, man. Take this off. So he takes it off, and he goes down to a river, and he finds five smooth stones. Now, some theologians will tell you those stones represent things like worship and prayer and all these. They're they're rocks. He went and got five rocks, okay? That's all there is to it. Now, I did read something this week that I thought was pretty interesting, which is this. Goliath had four brothers, He had four brothers. You think David maybe was like, I'm about to take this whole crew out right here. All right, but he gets five rocks and he goes out to meet the giant. Look at verse 42. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, So the first time this Philistine hears from the army of the living God is from the voice of David. David says to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. And listen to what he says. Oh, he bows up. Verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, And that all this assembly may know. Now when he said that, he wasn't pointing to the Philistine army. He's pointing to the Israelite army up in the trees who are shaking. He said, I want this assembly to know. I want this assembly to know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. So then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout. Oh, there you are. Now look, where, now look who's all ready to go. And they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor, the armor of the Philistine, he put it in his tent. All right. Now, before we dive in this morning, I want us to set a framework for understanding um, this story. David and Goliath, such a famous story. People have their own spin on it. They're going to tell you uh, what it means, what you, we should learn from it, right? We're going to hear that you've heard this is an underdog story. This is a story of never give up, of face your fears, of, of have courage. It's, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. All of that stuff comes from story like David and Goliath, right? And while these interpretations are good and maybe even encouraging, I think they fall short of what God is really teaching us here. I think it falls short of what God wants to reveal. Here's why. Because all of those interpretations only make sense when we put ourselves in the role of the hero of the story. When we put ourselves in that role. That we are David. That we are facing our fears, charging the giant, inspiring courage. But the truth is, like every story we've looked at through this series, this story is about Jesus. And Jesus is the hero of the story. This is a story of a shadow of a giant slayer who was coming, who was going to win a victory for all of us. So I want us to see it this morning as the shadow of a greater king who would deliver us. And I want us to see it in three parts this morning. The first is through the villain, then the victor, and then the victory. The villain, the victor, the victory. I kind of labored to get all those to start with a V, so you're welcome. All right? Let's start with uh, the villain. Obviously, we know who the villain of this story is. It is Goliath. He was an enormous man. Again, people, theologians put him at around nine feet tall. That's a big dude. His, his armor was impressive. It was made of bronze and iron. I want you to notice the number of times they reference metal when they're talking about Goliath, right? They said that he had a bronze helmet, bronze armor on his legs, a bronze javelin. He had an iron spearhead. His coat was of mail, which would have probably also been made of bronze. Why give all of that detail? Here's why. Because the Israelites didn't have any of that. They didn't have any of that. The armor of the Israelites would have been made of leather. It would have been made of animal skin. They were standing right in the middle of the Iron Age. That's what's going on this time. And the Philistines were some of the most advanced at harvesting, refining, 
and making weapons out of these metals that they would pull out of the ground. So when the uh, Israelite army looked and they saw this nine-foot giant weighed out into the valley, shimmering in bronze from head to toe, here's what they saw. That guy is undefeatable. There is not a place of weakness. He is insurmountable. And he was out there taunting them for 40 days, so large, so loud, that every time Goliath would challenge them, they would lose hope and they would run away. Here's what was happening. It was like Ben preached a few weeks ago. They were forgetting who they were. They were forgetting whose they were. And they were forgetting why God had brought them into this land in the first place. And because those things were being forgotten, they were running in fear. And listen, th their focus was on the enemy. Their focus was on the enemy. It was on his appearance, on his taunting, on his lies. And when they focused on the enemy, it caused them to forget the promise of God. And they forfeited their position of victory. Have you ever been there? Are you there today? The weapons of our enemy are no different. They are the same. What are the weapons that Satan uses against us? Lies, taunts, doubt, and fear. That's his weapons. That's the weapons from Eden to today. It hasn't changed. And when we have our eyes on the enemy, on the villain, and not the victor, our response to his taunts and his lies are no different than the Israelite army, and that is this. We fear and forget. I don't, I don't know if this describes you. I will tell you it describes me. When I fear, I get amnesia. <laughs> I get amnesia, right? When I'm afraid, I struggle to remember the promises of God. When I have my eyes on my circumstances, when I have my eyes on my problems, when I have my eyes on the things that I just feel like are overwhelming and insurmountable, I forget the promises of God and the taunts of the enemy get louder and my vision of God gets smaller. Has there ever been a season in your life or are you standing in a season in your life right now where that describes you? The taunts of the enemy are loud and my vision of God is small. That's where they were. That's how our enemy pursues us. I remember Pastor Connor uh, telling me a story one time about when he met Shaquille O'Neal. And you know, Pastor Connor was not a small guy. He was 6'5". But Shaquille O'Neal is 7'1". Okay? And he says, I remember standing next to that guy feeling tiny. Feeling tiny. Now imagine if you and I were standing next normal-sized humans, right, standing next to Shaquille O'Neal, right? We would feel, that's how the Israelite army felt. If, if Goliath was nine feet tall, the average Israelite warrior, 5'8", okay? So just imagine, you got some, you know, it, it's going to take some courage to wait out there. He looks enormous. So imagine them looking at that guy. Imagine you standing next to Shaquille O'Neal and how tiny you would feel. Imagine for a moment if you took Shaquille O'Neal and you stood him at the foot of Mount Everest. The tallest mountain in the world. Our planet's highest point is Mount Everest. Suddenly the perspective of Shaquille O'Neal gets smaller, right? Suddenly he, he looks tiny. What's the point? The point is this, and someone needs to hear this today. If you are in a war right now with fear and doubt, if the enemy is taunting you, if he is making you feel small, here's what you can know. Jesus is always Mount Everest. He is always Everest. He is always Everest. And there is nothing you can stack next to him that doesn't pale in comparison to him. He is always Everest. So the greatness and the strength of our victor, of our champion is not in question. That is settled and certain. So then what is the issue? The issue is our vision of our champion. The issue is how do I see? What kind of vision do I have of God and of his son, Jesus Christ? Because when I have a grand view of God, I have a proper view of the enemy. Nothing clarifies my view of the enemy like having a proper view of my father. 
I know it's quiet in here. I hope it's quiet because you're receiving that. Some of you right now are in an absolute war for your soul. You feel like you are under attack by the enemy. If you want to get a right view of him, get a grand view of God. And that's it. Get a grand view of God. And remember that your God is Everest. So the question is, how do we get a grand view of God? How do I do that? How do I increase my view of God? It is this. You get a grand view of his word. You get a grand view of this word. Oh, pastor, it can't be that simple. I am telling you, everything God wanted us to know about him, he put in these pages. It's why Jesus is called the Word, because He is everything God wanted to say to us. It's in here. So how do I increase my vision of God? I look at the plan and the picture He painted for me to see Him. It's in His Word. It tells the story of God's greatness. And listen, God's Word answers and defeats every weapon of the enemy. I want to show you this. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 real quick. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 12. I want you to see the resources given to us to stand against the enemy. God's word says this, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What's Paul saying? He's saying, the neighbor that drives you crazy is not your enemy. The guy at work you think's out to get you, not your enemy. The child whose relationship that you have with them is broken right now, and it's not your enemy. Your enemy is, is something deeper. It's darker. It is the principalities. It is spiritual forces. That's who your enemy is. So what do we do? Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. So what is the army? Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now why would I need the belt of truth? Because what is the enemy's weapon? Lies. Because one of the enemy's greatest weapons is lies and accusations. So i got to put on the belt of truth. And, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why would I need the breastplate of righteousness? Here's why. Because the enemy wants to weaken me by drawing my eye to things that are unrighteous. He will make sin look amazing. Am I wrong? I'm telling you, he will make sin look awesome. So how do I see it for what it is? I put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, verse 15, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Why do I need those, that readiness on my feet with the gospel of peace? Because the enemy wants to rob you of your sense of urgency to live holy for the Lord and on mission for the Lord. He wants to rob you of your sense of urgency for that. Verse 16, and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That shield of faith is important. <laughs> that shield of faith, is, it matters. It isn't a shield made of effort. Hear me, it isn't a shield made of your best effort. It isn't a shield constructed out of a life of security you've built for yourself. That doesn't matter when the enemy is slinging the darts, when he is slinging the accusations, when he is telling you lies, when he is reminding you of failure, when he is bringing up past failure to give you present shame, that apparatus doesn't matter. The only thing that extinguishes that is the shield of faith. And listen, he will rain those arrows down, won't you? Anybody feel like you've ever been in a season where he's just raining down the arrows? Every time I think about this, I think of a scene from 300 where he says, remember the scene from 300? Where he says, our arrows will blot out the sun. Remember that? And they're standing on this <laughs> little narrow thing. And all of a sudden, these thousands of arrows fill the sky. Now, nobody got, an, nobody got hit with one arrow in that scene. That is some nonsense is all I'm telling you. 
But here's the point. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like it's unrelenting. The arrows of the enemy can be unrelenting. So how do we battle that? We raise up the shield of faith, and it puts every one of those to death. Every one of them. Verse 17, and he says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, why would we, we, why would we need the helmet of salvation? Because salvation tells me whose I am. Salvation tells me who I am. Right? I am saved. I am a child of God. I am born again. I am forgiven. I am a royal priesthood. I stand linked arm in arm as a part of a holy nation. That's who I am. And if I fight from that place, putting on that helmet of salvation, it changes the way I battle. And then he says, in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word in your heart is your greatest weapon. I use this verse all the time. If it's a part of every sermon, I'm sorry, I just can't get over it. David said, I have hidden your Word. Where? Why? so that I will not sin against you. What does David say? It is your word that helps me see what is unrighteous and gives me a grand view of God and causes me to walk in purity. Just like David saw that day, we know that the villain we face is great, but our victor is greater. So that's kind of a look at the villain. We know it's Goliath. He's a shadow of Satan, and he comes with the taunts and the lies and the accusations. I want us to look at the victor now. We know that David is the victor in this story, right? He's the victor for the people of Israel. But I want you to see how he did it. And I want us to see how Jesus is the greater victor, the greater deliverer, the greater king. There are two things I want you to see in David's victory. The first is this, that David defeated the giant through weakness. He defeated the giant through weakness. And here's the second thing, that David fought in place of his people. That's the two things I want you to see. Let's let's deal with that first one. David defeated the giant through weakness. Listen, it wasn't some measure of strength or training that gave David victory. Why? Because David didn't have any of those. (laughs) He didn't have any of those. Now, he had his experience as a shepherd, and that mattered. I mean, I was impressed when he was like, look, Saul, I got this. There was a lion, came and took a sheep. I went and got the sheep. The lion gave me attitude, uh, and, I, and I took him. I killed him. You know, and I'm thinking, that's pretty awesome. But that isn't the same as being trained as a soldier for military warfare. David didn't have that training. We know that David was young. He was young. How do I know that? You had to be 20 years old to serve in the army of Israel. It would be 20. He wasn't in that army. His brothers were. He wasn't. So we put David somewhere. A lot of stories will tell you, oh, he's 11 or 12. Most historians think he was between 15 and 18, kind of in that age, uh, but still too young to be in the army. So he hasn't been trained. He's young. And listen, he had no armor. He had no armor. He didn't even put on the leather that the Israelites were wearing. He had nothing. Right? We see him trying to put on Saul's armor. He's like, no, I don't need this. So what's the point? What appeared to be weakness for David was the very thing that gave him victory. It was weakness to have no training. It was weakness to have no weaponry. It was weakness to have no armor. It was weakness to go alone and have no support. But it is precisely those weaknesses that position David to have a grand vision of God and to keep his eyes on him. What's the point? The point... I think for me here is the more I put on myself to make myself enough, the smaller my vision of God gets and the less I think of Him. And then I come to a situation where I realize all of that effort isn't enough and I'm having to operate out of a tiny vision of God. When David stepped into the battlefield where he wasn't even supposed to be that day, he said, I I don't need that sword. I I don't need your armor. I don't need that training. I don't need anybody to even go with me. Why? Because I'm going to remember the promises of God. 
And I'm going to step out on this field knowing God said, I'm going to make you. A, he promised our God, our father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And all these enemies, I'm going to put them under your feet. David said, all I need to know is this guy's already under my feet. I just need to go out there and do it. Is there something in your life right now you are convinced you cannot overcome? If the answer is yes, I want to tell you God is the victor over that thing and he can put it under your feet. But it isn't going to happen with your best effort. It's going to happen believing his promises. David defeated the giant through weakness. Listen, Jesus defeated our giant through weakness. So hold on, Pastor Matt. Are you saying Jesus was weak? No. I'm saying defeat Dave, uh, Jesus defeated our giant through weakness. I want you to consider two things. The first is I want you to consider the incarnation. Consider his coming to earth. Look at Philippians chapter 2 very quickly. Philippians chapter 2, if you start in verse 6, here's what God's word says. It says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Jesus became a man. God became a man. The creator became the created. And is there anything more vulnerable than a baby? I want to show you guys a picture. Look at this picture. Those are my two knuckleheads right there. They're right back there in the back. Guys, y'all wave. Oh, there they are. They're 15 now. They don't look like this anymore. Uh, and they don't have that new baby smell on them anymore either. I'll tell you that. Um, but I will tell you, these two guys uh, were, were precious. They are precious. But I remember taking that picture, and I remember those first few days of them being born and having this distinct feeling of, wow, they are 100% dependent upon me, <laughs> right? Anybody remember that feeling when you bring the baby home and you're like, oh, this, is, this got real in a hurry, <laughs> right? That's how I felt. I was like, oh, man, what are we? Okay, here we go. And, but... There was not, that, that's their most vulnerable moment, completely dependent upon their father and their mother to care for them. And listen, when we consider the nativity, when we see the sheer impoverishment of that moment, they were unwelcome in the end. He was born in a stable and laid in a manger. And listen, while we look at those things and go, isn't that precious? It didn't feel precious. It was a debasement. It was humiliating for the God of creation, which is who Jesus was, if you read John 1, for the God of creation to become his own creation and to be born in that way. He humbled himself. The, the, the nativity was not a scene of grandeur and strength, but of humility and vulnerability. The, the incarnation was a moment of of weakness. Consider the cross for a moment. If you finish reading Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the key word here is, is humbled. Uh, the Greek for that word literally means to bring low. That's what the word means. Jesus humiliated. He humbled himself. He brought himself low when he endured the cross. And the cross was a place of scorn and of humiliation and shame. And yet, because Jesus embraced it in that moment of weakness, we get to see it as a place of victory and freedom. Jesus defeated our enemy through weakness. And yet, we get to see those places as places to celebrate and rejoice and as places where we find freedom. So David defeated the giant through weakness. Jesus defeated our giant through weakness. Here's the second thing. David fought in the place of his people. This, this version of warfare that was happening right here when Goliath came down and David came down into the valley was called substitutionary warfare, literally what it was called, which meant they 
would send a warrior in there, and whatever the outcome was of the one-on-one battle became the outcome for the entire battle, for both armies. So David's fate became the army of Israel's fate. David went as a substitute, as a representative for his people. But we know there is a greater substitute. There is a greater deliverer. There is a greater king. David was the shadow. Jesus was the substance. Jesus fought in our place. He fought in the place of his people. If you look at Romans chapter 5 and you start in verse 6, here's what God's word says. For while we were still weak, what does that mean? It means that while we were still in the trees on the mountainside, scared to death of the enemy, while we were up there, while the enemy was yelling curses and taunts and accusations, and we couldn't bring ourselves to even look at him, we were so scared. That moment, while we were hiding and weak at the right time, Christ died for the for the what? The ungodly. Can I just tell you this morning, Christ didn't die for you because you got it figured out. He died for you because you're a hot mess and so am I. He died for me because I am ungodly so that in him and in that sacrifice and in that moment of weakness as the cross that becomes my moment of strength, I can be godly. I can become the righteousness of Christ. He died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. David entered the story for his people when they were at their weakest. They were afraid and unable to do anything for themselves. Jesus, the greater David, the greater king, entered our story when we were at our weakness and we could do nothing for ourselves. While we were still, he fought in our place. He became our advocate, our representative. Meaning what? Meaning the death he died was my death. That was the death I owed. But he stood in my place. And because of his great love for me, he suffered death in my place to win a victory for me that I could never win for myself. Let's look at that victory. We've seen the villain. We've seen our victor. Now let's see what does this victory mean for us. I think David had one goal when he waded out into the valley that day. I don't, I don't think David was going for his own fame or for his own glory. Remember, he wasn't even supposed to be there. He, he was, all he did was supposed to take some cheeseburgers to his brothers, come back and tell dad everything's good. That was his whole job, nothing else. And yet he gets there, he hears the taunts of Goliath, and something in him rises up. Something in this young man rises up. Now, I want you to imagine him looking around at the army of Israel, the armies of the living God, David calls them, and seeing their faces, right? This had to be confusing, seeing the fear on their faces. He doesn't, David doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand why they would be afraid. Why? Because David is remembering the promises of God. Their fear has caused them to get amnesia. David is remembering the promises. He is remembering that God gave us this land. He's remembering that God told us that the enemies that would try to take this from us, he was going to put under our feet, that he had the power to protect it and deliver us. David remembered he was standing in a place of victory. You go, wait a minute. But the battle hadn't started. The victory, it's still undecided. No. No. When God makes a promise to the person who has the mind of faith, that promise becomes fact, and we get to fight from victory, not for it. For the mind of faith, the promise of God is as good as done. It is as good as done. David, a man after God's own heart, not perfect. We know that. David had some trials coming in his life that he didn't see. The 16-year-old kid didn't know they were coming. But he was after God's own heart. And for the man after God's own heart, for the person who pursues God with a mind of faith, the promise of God is as good as done. And so David stands in complete victory. Here's the point. David gives that complete victory for the people of God. You see, once David 
knocked Goliath out with a stone. It says he ran over, he took Goliath's own sword and cut his head off. Now, why is that important? Because in this time, to remove the head of your enemy was a signal, a sign of utter defeat. It was the end of the battle. That's what that meant. It was the end of the battle. And when David removed the head of Goliath, the message was sent to the entire Philistine army that the battle was over. That's it. This thing's done. David gave complete victory for the people of God. And notice the sudden change in the army of Israel, right? Notice what happened to them when they look out and they see David hold up the head of Goliath. Look at verse 52 of 1 Samuel 17. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Oh, they, they found their courage all of a sudden. They, bo- they bowed up at that point, right? They've been hiding. Now the enemy's head is off his shoulders. He's, he's a foot or so shorter than he was earlier. Now we're ready to go. And, and it says they pursued them. They chased them down all the way back to Gath. Now, where was Goliath from? Chased him all the way back to where he came from. Listen to me. It's utter defeat. I'm not just going to chase you off of my land. I'm chasing you all the way back to where you... That's how Jesus defeats Satan. It's not a partial defeat. It's not a momentary defeat. He has utterly defeated him. He has crushed the head of the serpent. And we get to say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Because he has taken the keys of death and hell and utterly defeated the enemy. No longer were the Israelites going to fight for victory. They come running down that mountainside already having victory. Listen, that's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has given complete victory to the children of God. We are the weak army and he is the champion who defeated our enemy, the great king who crushed the head of the serpent. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, listen, every stronghold, every lie, every taunt, every fear, every doubt that wages war in and against the children of God, every one of them is defeated. Our enemy is defeated. So now every time you wade out into the battle against the enemy, the battle for your faith, the ba- men, the battle for your purity, the battle, ladies, for your integrity, the battle for your joy, the battle for your hope, the battle to keep that peace that God has promised you, Every time you wade out into the battle, you are standing in a place of victory, which changes how we fight. I'm not fighting desperate. I'm fighting victorious. Why? Because the enemy's defeated. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. And my enemy is defeated. So let me ask you, what are the fears in your life? What are the things you're afraid of? What are those things that if you're just honest, you don't have to shout them out. I'm not telling you mine. Don't tell me yours. What are those, what are those things that are causing you to run from them and not to them? What are those situations or circumstances in your life that seem so large, so far out of reach, uh, so undone, so out of control that you have forfeited the promise of God and the place of victory he's given you? What are those things? Is it death? Is it exclusion? Is it abandonment? Is it loss? Is it finances? Is it your children? In Christ We can have our fears put in their place. How do we do that? We remember that Jesus is Everest. We remember there is nothing that we can stack next to him that doesn't pale in comparison to him. And we get a grand vision 
of God. So, let me just ask you, do you need a grand vision of God today? Would your confession be, um, I've allowed my vision of God to just get small. He's become the name I speak when all else fails. When my best effort fails, when the apparatus that I've built to, to, to make my own armor and my own shield and my own breastplate, my own sword and my own helmet, when all of that fails, he's the name I speak. Has, my, has your vision of God got small? Do you need a fresh, grand, glorious vision of Jesus today? How are you going to get it? One, you're going to confess where you forfeited and then you're going to get it from getting a grand vision for his word. But maybe this morning, here in a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to worship, and maybe you just need to come down and confess that. You need to just come and say out loud, maybe for the first time, that fear that is chasing and pursuing you, that anxiety, that worry, that thing that just is unrelenting, and you haven't even said it out loud to anyone. Maybe this morning, you just need to come and say that. We would want to pray with you for that, to remind you and remind ourselves that we stand in a place of victory. Maybe this morning, your confession would be, I have yet to put my faith in the greater king. And if this Jesus really can set me free, then I need him. If that's you, then you need to come down this morning. We're going to be standing right here. Our elder and his wife, Lynn and Julie, will be right here. Me and some of our ministers will be here. I am asking that if that is you, you come. You come. Don't wait. Don't stay Right now, the enemy is saying to you, don't you leave that seat when the song starts. Don't you do it. They'll think this. They'll they'll say this. You need to put that out with the shield of faith. Raise it up. Step out and come on. All right? Let's pray, and then we'll worship. God, we love you. And I'm so thankful, Lord, for the power of your word. And so right now, Lord, as we worship, I am praying you would give us the courage to respond, to step out to come and lay those burdens down. Father, to come and confess that we need a grand vision of you. To come and give our heart to you, Lord, as our greater king, as our deliverer, as as the God of our salvation. So Lord, be honored in this moment. Come and move in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.